Years ago, when I was working with youth, we were in Iowa, I was taking a bunch of kids to a concert in Missouri, and we were in a van, and we were in the back roads of Missouri, and we had stopped to eat at McDonald's, and so I had made them get it to go, which is always a mistake because there's a lot of mess in the car, and one of the kids got car sick, but didn't tell me. They got car sick in the back, and they threw up into a McFlurry cup. And then completely unbeknownst to me, they set the McFlurry cup in the cup holder next to the driver's seat. Now, I I want you to know I did not drink it. Nobody drank it. Nothing like that happened. But I did think, oh, hey, somebody didn't finish their McFlurry. I'm not a germaphobe. And so I announced to the van, hey, whose is this, thinking I'm going to finish it off. And what somebody said from the back is, you do not want what is inside that cup. If you knew what that really was, you would want no part of it. Now, if uh, this is your first week here, it's only going to get weirder from here. (laughs) It's not going to get better because we are in week four of Revelation, and we are doing this really high-level view. There's so much stuff that I wish we could really dig into. If you've been reading along as I've been preaching, you've been thinking, like, why didn't he talk about that? Why didn't we don't have enough time? I mean, people complain about a sermon that goes over 35 minutes anyway. We just don't have enough time, so come talk to me afterwards. But we're just doing this really, really high-level view about the book of Revelation. And all of us, every single person in this room has a story like the one I'm about to tell you. You've all had this happen to you in some form or fashion. Me, I was at a store. I was checking out. I had just bought a few items. The clerk rings me up and my total comes to six, six, six. And the clerk stopped and made eye contact with me. And there was a pause and she said, I'm just going to make that six, six, seven. I'm like, wait, you're charging me more? <laughs> like, and I don't know, she didn't ask my permission. She didn't, she just looked at me and there was something about my bill coming to $6.66 that weirded her out. And I guess she defeated the hordes of Satan by rounding up that penny. But there was something about that number that freaked her out. We're finally, we're finally in the part of the book of Revelation that deals with that number. Because this is the only thing people want to talk about when you talk about the book of Revelation. They don't want to talk about the letters. They don't want to talk about the description of Jesus. They want to talk about the mark of the beast. That's really all uh, people care about. And this clerk, uh, thanks to her, not today, Satan, a stranger, was spooked by the buying and selling that was happening in conjunction with that number. And I don't know if she even knew why she was uncomfortable with that number. I don't know if you know why you might have been uncomfortable with that number when you were assigned a license plate that had 666 and you said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Or when you got your new cell phone and the number had 666 in it and you were like, nope, I can't do that. Or any form or variation of any of those things. This is a picture of Highway 666 in New Mexico. And I don't know why they don't call it the Highway to Hell because it seems like it's right there. But they actually changed it. It went through the state legislature because somebody was like, I'm just not sure. We want people driving down Highway 666. Now, nobody knows exactly why they're uncomfortable with that number. I mean, yes, it's the mark of the beast. We, we get some of that. But nobody knows exactly what is going on there. But it's the number one question associated with the book of Revelation by a mile. It's not even close. Nobody, they don't care about other stuff. It's about this. And it's just such a small part of the book of Revelation. It's kind of funny that it gets so much attention. And there are an endless stream of YouTube research videos about what the number is. And every generation has said, oh, 
oh, it is most definitely this thing. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But what we want to do is we want to understand what is actually going on in the book of Revelation. So since I know people care about it, we're going to do something odd this week in that we're going to zoom way in on the passage that talks about this number, and then we're going to zoom way out and we're going to look at the whole big picture and talk about that and how it fits within the context of everything that John is trying to accomplish in the book of Revelation. Revelation 13, verse 16. Let's just jump in the deep end. 13, verse 16. It's really helpful for you to have a Bible, for you to open it up, for you to make sure that what is being presented is accurate according to the word that God has given you in your hands. Revelation 13, 16. This is the relevant passage that people like to zoom in on. But let's talk about it. It's fun. Especially if you're new here today, I, I kind of thought maybe I should apologize to all the visitors and say it's not always this weird. But I'm actually glad because you're going to get to see how we navigate Scripture, especially difficult, controversial Scripture. And I think that's actually a net positive. Revelation 13, 16. It... Also force all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads. The soundtrack turns into a minor key. It's a little dissonant. Verse 17, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Yes, sir, it does, John. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. 666. This is catnip for conspiracy theorists. They love it. The problem is, is most people approach this passage of Scripture with that Harold Hill logic. You know what I'm talking about? The music man. You guys don't like musicals. Not a lot of musical fans here, I can see. All right. Well, I'm going to educate you a little bit this morning because Harold Hill rolls into River City, and he's trying to sell a bunch of band equipment, but the people in River City don't realize that they need it. So he needs an in. He needs to figure out how does he whip up a little bit of panic in River City so that he can come in and he can offer the solution, just get all your children in an orchestra and everything will be okay. And he realizes there's a big crowd outside the pool hall, and he says, hey, What's going on over there? Oh, that's the new pool hall. And so he starts singing, right? There's trouble. And if you know the song, you know exactly how the chorus goes. Hey, there's trouble right here in River City. And trouble starts with T, rhymes with P. That stands for pool. And you're like, wait a second. What does that have to do with anything? That's about how good the logic is that people bring to understanding or trying to unravel what this number is all about. It's not far from what people do with 666. So every generation has their conspiracy theory. Theories. And I don't mean to like pigeonhole or label anybody, but if, if you are part of the boomer generation, for you, it was probably relayed to you through a very popular nonfiction novel. And they said, hey, the mark of the beast is the European common market because there's going to be 10 kings and it's going to 10 countries. And then it became the EU and there's a different amount of countries. And the treaty was signed in Rome and it was signed in 1957. Of course, what happens when you subtract one from nine and then add five and then minus seven, you get six. It's clear as day, right? And now we've got the EU and there's 27 countries or whatever it is. And of course, Great Britain just left, but oof, we got trouble right here in River City. If you're part of the Gen X generation, maybe you grew up in the 80s, you might have heard this. This probably wasn't as common, but every, every president has been accused of being 
the Antichrist, which, by the way, a little fun fact, do you know what word does not appear in the book of Revelation? Yeah, Antichrist does not appear, not once. And you're like, wait a second, I thought that's what it was all about. It doesn't even appear once. Certainly references this figure that is Antichrist, but, or many figures that are Antichrist. But anyway, if you grew up in the Gen X generation, uh, it was probably the president. Hmm, what could it be? Could it be Ronald? Six. Wilson? Six. Reagan? Six. It must be Reagan. It has to be. So John, who was predicting 2,000 years ago in English how many letters of the name of that president who would be elected in 1980 would have, and that must be the mark of the beast. Oh, we got trouble right here in River City, folks. That's Harold Hill logic. Or if you're Gen Z, Facebook. I know none of you guys are on Facebook, but it's happening right now. Facebook just changed their name to Meta, and Meta is Hebrew for death. Did you know that? Yeah, and Facebook has a marketplace where you can buy and sell. Having a Facebook account is the mark of the beast. We have trouble right here in River City. Now, is that good logic? No, it's all terrible logic. It's all tangential and patchworked and quilted together. It's not good at all. There are plenty of good reasons not to have a Facebook account, but Revelation chapter 13 is not one of them. Now, we could do this all day. I could give you example after example after example. And I guarantee you, there's some of you in this room that are like, Patrick, you just dismissed the thing that I think the beast is. I think it's that, and I'm going to be a little annoyed the rest of the sermon, and I'm going to go on YouTube later, and I'm going to study the book of Revelation so I can prove that it's the thing that you just said it wasn't because we have our little pet theory about these things. We could do this all day. We could do this all day. Why is there so much confusion? Why is there so much confusion? I want to show you a picture, way zoomed in picture. This is when you zoom really close into this picture. This picture could be anything. This picture could be a picture of, any guesses? It could be two scary dark figures. It could be two ghosts. It could, be, it could be the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. It could be anything because we're zoomed so in, it's pixelated, it's not clear. We can inject any meaning that we want into that picture. We can claim that it's anything because we're zoomed in so far that we can't clearly see what it is. Now, what if we zoom out and get a little context and we maybe read around the verses a little bit or maybe read the entire book of Revelation or maybe read the New Testament? What now it lo- it's starting to take shape. Does anybody have any guesses as to what this could be? Could be nostrils, yeah. Could be like some, some nose of some scary beast. Now, we could, we could do this all day too and we can still inject our own meaning even though maybe the, the definitions have narrowed just a little bit, the target is narrowed just a little bit, but we could still kind of decide what we think this is. And this is what happens when you just read one section of scripture. And that's why you have to zoom out. I told you a couple weeks ago that Revelation is about the whole Bible. It's about the Old Testament too. How about we zoom out a little further? Does anybody have any idea what this is? Yeah, zoom out one more, would you? Oh, it's, it's Presley and his sweet little Lucy, and they've got a little photo op right here on this stage earlier this week when Lucy came to visit Presley. It is a beast. Just not the beast that we might have thought it was. When you read the entire narrative of Scripture and you allow Scripture to define itself, then you get a clearer picture of what Scripture is saying. If you read two verses in Revelation chapter 13, you are going to be confused. 
So let's talk about what the mark of the beast, these two verses really are by zooming way out. And remember, these are important rules. We talked about week one, I said how we read Revelation is as important as what we read how we read it. So first of all, remember, Revelation is a real letter, a real letter that John composed thinking of real people to whom he was writing this letter. These people were not worried about Ronald Wilson Reagan. They were not worried about Facebook or the European common market. It had to make some kind of sense to them. So what is an answer? What is a way of understanding the mark of the beast that could make some kind of sense to the people to whom this letter was composed? We have to understand that. Secondly, we have to understand that this is full of Hebrew Bible references in this section. Throughout the whole book, there are as many Hebrew Bible references in this one book as there are in the entire New Testament put together. So if you think you're going to have a chance of understanding, of unlocking, of decoding the book of Revelation without reading the, the, the Bible, you're, you're going to struggle. You're going to think that it's some crazy theory. It's full of Hebrew Bible references. So people immediately would have thought, hmm, hand and forehead, hand and forehead. Oh, that's just exactly like Deuteronomy chapter 6, a prayer that they prayed every day, that you had to bind God's word on your hand and on your forehead. And in some cases they did that literally, but in many cases they did not because they understood that what the author of Deuteronomy was getting at was that they had to believe and they had to behave in a way that was consistent with who God was. It wasn't necessarily a physical binding or a physical mark, but it was a way, it was their character, and it was their behavior. Ezekiel chapter 9 verses 4 and 6 talks about marking those who care about the things of God. It's about protecting them, about making them stand out, and making sure that they're covered by God. It's not a tattoo, it's not a barcode, it's what do you believe in and who do you serve? And so I know many people are worried, like, nope, I know it, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Bezos is going to be tattooing babies as soon as they're born. Like, come on, there's so much nonsense. Read the Bible. Number three, commerce, buying and selling, was already connected to idol worship in the first century. It already existed in the first century. You could not be part of a guild unless you worshipped at the, uh, the temple of the goddess or god of that guild. It already existed in the first century. A lot of people have said the mark of the beast is a credit card. Uh-oh, you got a mark of a beast in your back pocket. We're not waiting for a future day. It was already happening. And John was warning about something that they were dealing with. Any intro to Roman history covers that. Number four, <coughs> we have to calculate the number, John says. Calculate the number. This is really interesting, actually. And I know this is kind of Bible study stuff. It's not as much preaching, but it's important. Greek letters are their numbers. So, for example, if you were to read the book of Peter, it would be Peter Alpha. The second book of Peter is Peter Beta. So, numbers played a significant role, and you could actually communicate using letters and numbers. For example, in Pompeii was this really well-preserved graffiti on the wall of Pompeii where it says, I love the one whose number is 545. 
some teenager wanting to be, you know, having some crush on some boy or some girl. It's just exactly like we see carved into bunk beds up at camp, like John loves SH. Oh, they'll never know who it is. It's just a secret way of communicating, but it wasn't secret because people knew how this worked. And by the way, this is kind of valuable. The mark of the beast, the number is not 666. Did you know that? It's not 666. Wait a second. We just read that, Patrick. What do you, the number of the beast is 666. So my clerk who rounded up a penny so I wouldn't be paying $6.60, she was off on that purchase by $659.34. <laughs> actual literal text says 666. So every credible academic at least references one historical figure as a possibility. They don't all say this is definitely it, but they all reference this one historical figure as a possibility of someone who exemplifies this beast and what it would mean to negotiate life with the beast. Even after this person died, they continued to reference him as the prototypical villain. They even used the word beast to describe him, and it was a Roman emperor and whose title calculated up to the number 666. And you guys know who it is. It's not a secret. It wasn't a secret to them. That's why John says, hey, think about this. Calculate the number a little bit. And so for them, at least referencing, and you had guesses who it was? It was Nero, Caesar Nero. 666. Now, some of you are like, well, I mean, why? I mean, you had to exist 2,000 years ago for this to mean anything to you. Well, no, that's not true at all, actually. In fact, a lot of our politicians do something similar today. When they're wanting to disparage their competition, they'll compare them to somebody unfavorable. Often it's somebody like Hitler. Ooh, you're being like Hitler. Or maybe sometimes when your spouse and you are having some kind of argument, have you ever compared your spouse to their parent? Have you ever done that? Always goes well. It's a real winner. Yeah. It just calms things right down. Authors in the first century said, hey, this guy's acting Nero-like, <laughs> even though Nero was dead. This guy's being a real Nero. They even referred to Domitian, who was a later emperor, as Nero-like. They didn't necessarily believe that Nero was the beast, but they exemplified the qualities that they were trying to describe. And most importantly, out of all of this, all of that we've talked about and read, and just talking about this one aspect of this, of this chapter, is if people would just read one verse later. One verse. One verse later. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. The people of God who have God's name on their foreheads, his and their father's name written on their foreheads. Is he talking about a tattoo or a microchip or a credit card or EU or meta? Is he talking about any of those things? No, he's talking about you have to pick a side. You are either with God or you're with the enemy. You're either thinking and acting in accordance with God, or you're thinking and acting in accordance with the enemy. That's what he's talking about. 
And it applies to every generation for the last 2,000 years. Are you on the side of the lamb or are you on the side of the beast? And there has been beasts in every generation. There have been Nero-like figures in every generation who used force to try to coerce the saints of God into compromise. That's always been true. It was true for them and it's true for us. So, that's not as exciting as scouring the headlines every day for the New World Order. But as we'll see, there always has been beasts. There always have, has existed entities that fulfill this description. All right, so that's those two verses. So I said we're going to zoom way in, and now we're going to zoom way out, and we're going to look at this larger section of the book of Revelation, and you're going to see how the mark of the beast fits into the whole conversation. Okay? You ready? Last week we talked about the cycle of sevens. You remember the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. And we talked about the big word recapitulation, how, how John was describing human history. And then he would reset and he would describe it again. We talked about all that. And some of you really astute people noticed, like, wait a second, Patrick. You said you were going to cover chapter 6 through chapter 16, but you skipped a couple chapters in there. And that's exactly right. I did, because that's what John does. John describes those three sevens, but then in between the second and third sevens, he says, wait a second. I just need to make something clear. I need to introduce some new characters so you see this whole story from a different perspective. You know how when you're watching a movie, there's a, like a flashback scene in the movie and the, the color tone of the film changes to help you indicate that something different is going on here? That's exactly what would happen if there were color tone changes in the book of Revelation. So look at this with me. Chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1. By the way, this has been one of the hardest sermon series to prepare it really is. Not because I think like, you know, I'm right and everybody else is wrong, but because it's just been like, man, the more I read this, the more I'm just convicted that our lives play out in the book of Revelation every day, the choices we make, the, the battles we have with temptation or the losses we give into with temptation. I'm just convinced Revelation is just this day-to-day walking through Christianity battle. And it's been interesting to me to be so convicted by what John is trying to do and then hopefully try to communicate it clearly. But it's not. I don't feel like I can communicate the urgency John is writing with and John is communicating with, saying, like, the things that you are doing right now play into this grand narrative. And it's just so hard. I, I feel like it's so hard to help people see this is their life. This is their everyday choices. This is your Monday morning. These are the ways that you interact with your family and your coworkers. These are the choices that you make about what websites you go to. All of this is part of the battle that we're seeing play out in the book of Revelation. And I just want us to just, to just understand there's so much at stake. It matters so much. Chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Here we go. Strange. It's revelation. It's strange, but this is a different sort of strangeness than what we've been looking at. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Quote from Psalm 2, specifically about the Messiah. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And that 
Five verses is all you get about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in this story. And it's kind of interesting, and this passage is fascinating to me because there's very little controversy about it. Everybody reads that and they're like, okay, I think we're seeing this very vivid metaphorical description of Jesus coming onto the scene. The dragon is clearly the bad guy. The woman is in some way, whatever produces Jesus, if it's Mary or if it's Israel, but there's really no, no controversy. So this is, this is the Christmas story. And I think we should start adding dragons to the nativity scene that you put on your mantle. That would be awesome. Because this is the Christmas story. A boy about to be born, but an enemy that wants to kill it. But he can't, and he's mad. And then John warns us, verse 17, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. We're going to come back to the verses in between 5 and 17 in a little bit. They're very important. Those, he's waging war against those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So John is telling us, heads up, a battle is coming your way. The dragon tried to take out Jesus, couldn't. Now the battle is coming your way, is what he's saying. So we're introduced to two beasts because John wants to see what the battle will look like. And I know this is strange. This is strange stuff. But these two beasts are empowered by this dragon, which, by the way, John says is Satan. Beast number one, 13, verse 4. And this is all through 13, verses 1 through 10. But this is verse 4. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against the beast? We just have to give in to the beast. We have to do what the beast says because we're not powerful enough to stand up against the beast. We just have to go along with the system because if we try to stand up against the system, we'll get crushed. Who can fight against the beast? Man, I've heard that justification so many times. I don't like that they do this at my company, but I mean, what am I going to do? Quit? <laughs> I couldn't do that. I mean, then how would I pay the bills? I don't like that that's happening, but what am I going to do? Stand up against it? It's just the way the world is. It's just the way things are. Who can fight against the beast? I've heard that. I've, I've said that so many times. This is just the way it is. It's too bad. I don't like it. It's just the way it is. The second beast, this is chapter 13, verses 11 through 18. Verse 11, then I saw a second beast. Oh boy, there's more beasts? Like one's enough, a dragon's enough, and now you got beasts? Come on, John. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It, this is fascinating. It had two horns like a lamb. It looked like a lamb, but when it spoke, it spoke like a dragon. It looked like Jesus, spoke like Satan. Hmm. Have we ever been around any entities that everything looks right, but what they're compelling you to do is exactly what God would not want you to do? Absolutely. The battle, John says, may look like powerful entities forcing you to compromise. You don't have a choice. You can't stand up against the beast. You must do what we say. That may be what the battle looks like. Or the battle may look like the second beast. Powerful forces demanding worship, demanding your allegiance, demanding your loyalty. You know how everything comes back around style-wise? Like, you know, you were cool in high school, and then you were not cool in your 30s, and then in your 40s, all the stuff that was cool in high school is cool again? And you're like, why didn't I just hang on to all that stuff? I gave it all the goodwill. I'm such a dummy. Now my kids are wearing all this stuff that was cool in the 90s. 
Truth is, everything just comes back around. And depressingly, so do false ideas and false teaching. We get new names for them, but it's just bad ideas that get recycled. And it's just predictable and depressing. Earlier this week, one of my children and I uh, went into a store that we thought was a gift shop. Thought it was a gift shop. I'm like, yeah, let's go in. We'll get something for mom. And uh, we're wandering around, and this place only sold rocks and crystals. And I started looking around at the demographic of people shopping at this gift shop. And I don't have anything against dreadlocks and bare feet, but there was a lot of that in this store. It was a very specific type of consumer who was at this store. And as we're walking around, uh, oh, this is, that's a pretty rock. There were these little labels on the bins of rocks. And the little labels said things like, this rock will release fear and anxiety. What do you throw it at someone that you don't like? How do, what does that mean? This crystal will help you lose weight. Do you eat it? Like what? It just this rock. This rock will give you harmony in your relationships. This rock will grant you prosperity. And you're looking at all these labels. And I actually started to get a little agitated. I was looking around at the people in the room and I'm like, rocks? Are you serious? You are putting your hope and your faith in rocks? Did you know that the Twin Cities metro area is one of the most highly educated metro areas in the United States and people are looking for hope in rocks? It's insane. This place was packed. I said, we have to get out of here. This is ridiculous. This is depressing. Can you imagine talking with somebody like, hey, yeah, can you believe people thousands of years ago used to worship idols? How ridiculous and silly was that? Hang on. I'm going to cleanse my aura with this crystal. You're like, what? This is insane. And this stuff has come back and everything is going to come back. All the false doctrines that the church has tried to put to rest over the years, they're going to come back again and again and again. The beast doesn't die until the end of the story. They're going to keep coming back. They're going to keep coming back. Now rocks, maybe, I mean, we, we got a, uh, you guys are on the same page as me. I know some of you are like, got a crystal at home. <laughs> I better, better not let Patrick see that. Yeah, you shouldn't. You should throw that dumb thing away. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, if you think that rocks can harmonize your relationship, but somehow Jesus isn't powerful enough to, I mean, that's, that's idol worship. That's false teaching. Now, rocks may be a bad place to invest our faith, right? Duh. But what equally dumb things are we placing our faith in? Yeah. A stock market? Good job, yes. You put all your hope and trust in the stock market. Excellent. Am I saying don't play the stock market? No. But if that's where your hope is, if that's where your hope lies, you're no better than people buying rocks at a store hoping that it will save their lives. I mean, there's all kinds of things. What, what, what about social relevance? If I get enough likes, if people, if people really like watch my video or look at my account, and I know some of you don't care about some of that stuff, but some of you, that's the important thing in your life. What is it? What false thing have you been tempted to put your hope in? That's the beast. That's the beast. The beasts are anything that demands the allegiance and worship that should only belong to God. And in the first century, it was Rome. There's just no doubt about that's who they had in mind was Rome, demanding their allegiance and demanding their worship. And John was saying, don't give in. It's not what it looks like. 
Now, those beasts that are described here in chapter 13 are, are force and, and deceit. And, and some of us are so contrarian that we will not do the thing, even if we want to do it, if someone else tries to tell us to do it. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you were going to go at the green light, but somebody honked. And so you're just going to sit there a little bit, let them know who's in control. So John actually turns our attention to another villain. I want you to jump ahead. So we have the bowls in chapters 15 and 16, and we jump ahead to chapter 17. And he, he introduces us to another villain. It's not the beast, it's not the dragon. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into, a, into the wilderness where I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. Same beast as we saw, the beast from the sea. Verse 4, the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with the abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. Some of you aren't going to like this next part because the translations we read clean up the word that's used here. Verse 5, the name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon, the great like Babylon, that's thousands of years ago. The mother of prostitutes. That's the word we don't like. That's not the word John used, by the way. And of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, listen, when I saw her, John says, I was greatly astonished. This is so fascinating because the word astonished is not the right word. Every other time in Scripture this word is translated, it's translated, I marveled. I marveled. I was impressed. I admired. And what he's saying is, I, John, who was seeing a vision, who had spent time with Jesus, I looked at this woman and I got it. I got the appeal. I marveled. She was beautiful. She looked wonderful. She looked like she was promising all the things that I ever wanted. John is saying, I get it. And the angel has to snap him out of it in verse 7. And the angel said, hey, why are you astonished? Why do you marvel? Come on, snap out of it. Because beast one is, give me your allegiance. And a lot of us would be like, no way. Beast two, give me your worship. No. Beast three, the woman, hey, come over here. Everything you ever wanted. Everything that you ever longed for, I'll promise. I promise you will have it. Just come over here. Come see me. It's all the sin we pursue thinking it'll get us what we want. He's saying this is seductive stuff. These are the messages of the woman. You will find true purpose when you put yourself first. Don't worry about other people. You worry about you. You will find true purpose. You will find real sexual satisfaction when you lose restraint. That's where you'll find it. And we have a world that is bought into these lies, and we in the church struggle with them when we're wrestling with temptation. We're wrestling with these lies. You'll find social relevance if you promote this ideology. It's not biblical, but don't worry about that. People will accept you if you promote this way of thinking. You'll be accepted by the people you want to be accepted by. Psst, come over here. Here you go. Don't worry about those scary beasts. Come over here. Sin in the pursuit of personal, legitimate desires is still deadly and more seductive. It's more seductive. I think a lot of us are like, not giving in to the beast. But I think a lot of us are struggling with the woman riding on the back of the beast, according to the book of Revelation. Hey, Patrick, want a McFlurry? A delicious sugary dessert? You will not like what is in that cup. 
I promise you, you will not like it. John is saying you will not like what is down that road. Your life will not be fulfilled. Those are lies. I know you long for that, but that's not the path toward achieving what you long for. If you knew what that really was, you would want no part of it. Let me wrap up. There's so much we could dig into, but this is so good. It's so, it's so important. I want to draw your attention to one thing that you should know as we wrap up. And we're going to jump back to chapter 12. We've made our way through chapter 12 all the way to 17. Most of this section describing these bad guys, these villains, are devoted to their destruction. Most of it. It's not devoted to a description of who they are and what they can do and what you should watch out for. It's devoted to their demise, most of this section. And I think that's interesting. I want you to check this out. Look at chapter 12, verse 7. This is right after the dragon can't kill the sun. Verse 7, then a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Verse 8, but look, John is trying to grind home a point. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down. And the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to earth. Four different times in that section he says Satan is defeated. Again and again and again. And this is so valuable. Number one, you should expect a fight, a moral fight in your life. You should expect it. The fight is coming. That's what John said. But this is so important. Our enemies are no match for our God. They're no match for our God. If you have been giving into temptation, it's not because that temptation is too strong for you to overcome. That's important for you to know. If you have been giving into anger or lust or deceit or gossip, feeling like, well, who am I to fight against the beast? It's not because those enemies are too strong for you to overcome. They have the power that you give them because the battle has already been won. Satan has been defeated. Now he's mad and he wants to fight against the children of God. He's upset and there is going to be a battle, but the battle is won. I want you to finish with these words of this song in chapter 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters. You're not good enough. You can't do it. You can't beat that sin. You'll never be enough. You'll never be a good enough mom. You'll never be a good enough dad. You'll never overcome that deep, dark secret that you've been holding on for years. You'll never overcome that besetting sin. That accuser, that accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. Verse 11, they, look at this, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. We love our lives. We love satisfaction. We love purpose. And sometimes we will give in to the beast because we love those things so much. But then sometimes we'll listen to the whisper of the prostitute. I will provide. I will give you everything you want. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. 
Your life is more than this life. You got to see behind the scenes of this cosmic battle that we don't get to picture very often. And so as weird as Revelation may be, and as much as you think like, why can't we just talk about something more practical? What has been laid before you is a choice. A choice to be a part of the army of the Lamb or just to go along with the system and just keep doing the things that we've been doing. Just keep living the way that we've been living. There's a better way because of a slain lamb. If you've had something going on in your life for a long time, hey, talk to somebody. We all have been struggling with sin. We all have been there. We all are there. We can help. We can carry one another's burdens. We can fight off the enemy together.